Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. Hi, I'm Rachel Koo, and I'm a traveller who loves to go to the supermarket when I'm abroad. My guest today launched an incredible culinary career from a tiny Parisian apartment. Rachel Koo is a British cook, writer and television presenter who packed up her life in London and pursued a dream to study patisserie at the world-famous Le Cordon Bleu Cookery School in Paris where she transformed her shoebox-sized studio into a supper club and even managed to charm the notoriously harsh French critics. In 2012, her best-selling cookbook, The Little Paris Kitchen, and her hit BBC TV show proved that there was an insatiable appetite for French food cooked simply. We fell head over heels with Rachel's vintage style and lived vicariously through her as she wandered the outdoor markets of quaint Parisian neighbourhoods and popped by the local boulangerie to buy freshly baked baguette. In the latest chapter of her gastronomic adventures, Rachel has bid au revoir to France and traded croissants for cardamom buns as she's now settled in Stockholm. Rachel's culinary journey takes us from the snow-capped Austrian Alps to deep within the Malaysian jungle. She also shares her fascination with Tokyo's convenience stores and her love of long summer days spent foraging for cloudberries in the Swedish forests. Here's Rachel Koo. Hi, Rachel, and welcome to The Escape Artist. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm so good because you're on the show. I'm very excited to have you here. I'm just wondering, where in the world are you right now? So I'm in Stockholm at the moment. Oh, and it's summertime. You've got those long summer evenings. Yes, the long days and like swimming in the lakes and just foraging. It's really... Very, very relaxing. Oh, beautiful. Then, of course, in the wintertime, you have those sort of frosted storybook Mm. settings in Stockholm. (laughs) Yeah, but last winter we had hardly any snow, so it's not as picturesque. It's just cold and dark. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to get started, I have a bit of an icebreaker for you. Is there a book, a film, a song or a piece of art that has inspired you to travel somewhere? Well, Just before I moved to Paris, I watched uh, the movie Amelie a lot with Audrey Tatou. Don't know if you know that movie. I love that film. It's one of my favorite too. (laughs) It's just, um, it really captures the kind of quirkiness of Paris and the charm Paris can have. Oh, absolutely. That film is so charming and it does, it paints such a brightly colored portrait of Paris. It's quirky little corners and all its Mm. idiosyncrasies. So I used to live in Paris for a time too, and that was certainly a film that I thought about a lot when I'd wonder the the village-like, very atmospheric streets of Montmartre, where the film is is set. Um, But yeah, I used to live as a tumbleweed or writer in residence at this bookshop called Shakespeare and Company. And there's a piano. Oh, do you know the shop? (laughs) I know it very well. I have spent many, I went to quite a few events there, actually. It's um... such a special, special spot. But there's a, a piano in the top room. And it used to drive all of the staff and everyone crazy because anyone who would come and sit and play at the piano always played the Amelie theme tune. (laughs) So let's let's go back to the genesis of your travelling life. Um, What is your most treasured childhood travel memory? 
I guess as a kid, there were only kind of a few locations we traveled to. It was either Austria to see my mum's side of the family or it was Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And I do remember being squashed in the back of the car and driving from the UK to Austria. So you would, you know, drive from the south of England, you'd get the ferry to France, then you drive through France, Belgium, Germany, maybe Switzerland to Austria. So you would drive through all these countries. And I do remember as a kid being up in the mountains uh, and, you know, the freshness of just hiking through the meadows or listening to the cows on the mountains. They all have bells. So you can hear them like munching away on grass and the bell ringing. So I miss that. And for someone who hasn't been to Austria before, Where would you recommend them going and exploring? I think, obviously, Vienna is such a stunning city. For me, it has that charm Paris has. You know, the architecture is very grand. There's a lot of culture, a lot of art. But then the food is amazing. Um, Viennese food is very different to the food, Vincent's, you get where my relatives are from, um, where you can get fresh buttermilk and you can get a really simple uh, Kirzebrot, which is just a slice of rye bread with fresh cheese on it. And it's just the simplest thing ever. But I guess it's the simple pleasures in life, isn't it? Travelling doesn't need to be fancy or grand. You're so right. That sounds absolutely idyllic. And in contrast to that, what about your childhood spent uh, visiting Malaysia? So I remember my first trip to Malaysia and I was about primary school age and I remember getting on a, a long flight and then getting to like Malaysia and the heat, you know, when you hit the ground, the tarmac, you get out the plane and then the humidity kind of wraps you like it's like a warm, sticky hug. Mm. Um, so that that I kind of really remember. And then it was just food, just like copious amounts of amazing food. Um, but I think my childhood or like wherever I travel is just about food for me most of the time. Obviously, I do other things, but the kind of most vivid memories is the food. Like we went at Christmas, my first visit, and I remember my relatives, uh, they had a whole suckling pig on a spit and as a, you know, as a kid, you like seeing this whole pig on a spit. It was such an impression. Um, or eating chili crab uh, and mopping up all that spicy chili sauce with, you know, white bread. Um, the food in Malaysia, it's hugely diverse because of all the different cultures you get there. Um, and the flavors, like the the chili, the saltiness, like from the fermented shrimp paste you get there. Um, So if it weren't so far away, I'd be going there more often. I think Malaysian food has got to be some of the tastiest food in the world. And even just the produce there is incredible. Mm. I remember uh, trying a mangosteen in Kuala Lumpur when I was a child. And that sweet white flesh that's encased in that jewel-coloured purple shell just blew my mind. I'd never tasted anything like it. Um, But I've heard that in Malaysia, instead of saying, how are you, they ask, have you eaten yet? Is that right? Mm, Yeah, so it's interesting from a cultural point of view, it was a way of finding out how somebody's uh, financial situation was because it was a polite way. If they hadn't eaten, then it potentially could have been an indication that they didn't have enough money to buy food. So it was a way of like, oh, you haven't eaten yet. Let me help you by 
providing you with some food and a nourishing meal. Oh, I see. And so how have your parents' respective cultures, how do you think that that's shaped you into the person that you are today? Um, Experiencing different cultures definitely um, makes you not afraid of the unknown I think I, I think you you embrace an uncomfortable situation for instance when I first moved to Germany I had to go to school I was 12 I had to go to school on my own on the first day so I had to take a bus which took an hour I had to walk to school I didn't speak German very well and that situation was really difficult but in hindsight has kind of taught me that okay, you might be in a difficult situation, but it's okay, you'll get through it. So experiencing different cultures and, you know, the situation where you feel unsure of yourself, there's nothing to be afraid of. So you were living and working in London and that sort Mm. of sense of um, getting outside of your comfort zone or going on an adventure came about because you uprooted your life and suddenly moved to Paris. What motivated you to do that? So um, I was in my mid-twenties. I'd graduated from art college. I had been working in PR, fashion marketing. Uh, I'd been living in London for a long time. And I felt if I don't push myself to experience another culture, I'm going to be in London for the rest of my life. And I love London. London is an amazing city. It's vibrant. It's exciting. It's happening. But I felt, well, look, I'll move to Paris, I'll study patisserie, and if it doesn't work out, I can always come back to London and get a job in the city as a bilingual, no, or a trilingual secretary. So I speak English, German, French, uh, and now I speak Swedish. So Oh my gosh, wow, was... Rachel. <laughs> well, I always find if you're traveling, um, and actually when you live in a country, I try to make the effort to learn the language, um, and more so when you live in the country, because I think it's an insight into the culture and you connect better and you settle better when you make the effort. I mean, my Swedish is not good. <laughs> is there a particular word or expression in Swedish that you can think of that's especially fun that you can share with us? Um, oh my goodness, now you put me on the spot. Um, I, I could tell you a word which, like, because um, it's funny, every language has a different sound, and particularly with Swedish, you've got this back of the throat sound, and which I can't do. And when I first moved to Sweden, like, they have long words here, and, and I was like, what is that word? And it's huikwerkeska, and I'm not even doing the h- properly and it just means nurse so I was like oh how am I ever gonna learn to say that but I even I'm not doing the back of the throat sound properly but also just in the case of an emergency it just seems like a really long word to be asking to find a hospital (laughs) (laughs) yeah please Um, but I mean you're fortunate in in Scandinavian countries the level of English is astounding I mean it's like in comparison to when I moved to Paris where you really have to learn French but here you can literally get away with not learning English and and it wouldn't make a difference. So back in Paris then, you didn't speak any French. You've arrived not knowing, you know, what what was going to come of it. But you ended up, uh, we all know you and love you from your My Little Paris Kitchen and your BBC television series that was wildly successful. What was the journey from arriving in this foreign city to ending up having reached that level of success? 
Uh, basically, I mean, people like, I remember when the TV show came out, I said, oh, overnight success. And I'm like, it was not overnight. I've been working for like six years, you know, several jobs. I mean, I, at one point I was working at a French department store. I was looking after kids. I was teaching English. I was working in a bookshop all to make ends meet. So, yeah. And you started, when you were living there, you started running a a little supper club or a a sort of pop-up kitchen. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so basically I was writing the cookbook, The Little Paris Kitchen. I thought, look, when you write a cookbook, there's a lot of recipe testing. I didn't want to waste food. So I thought, well, why not have like people come around for lunch a couple of times a week. I can test recipes on them and they would pay me like a small donation to cover the ingredients cost. It ended up launching your career, so to speak. Mm. So in Paris, you obviously know the city very well. Do you have any hidden gems that you could recommend for the listeners? Well, look, I would go to one of the fresh food markets and you can check out where your local market is, where you're staying, or there's a market in uh, in the 11th for Marché de Ligre, which is Tuesday to Sunday. Saturday, Sunday, they have an antique part and it's a little bit bigger at the weekend. So head to the market get some nice fresh fruit you can get some cheese you can get like some charcuterie pick up a baguette and then um go have a picnic you know this is my tip if you want to know which stall you should be buying the fresh fruit veg and all the produce it's the one where all the french grandmas are like (laughs) queuing with their like granny trolleys that's the one you want to be queuing for that is such a good tip i mean chefs and celebrity cooks i mean you always seem to find the best places to eat and drink wherever you go so can you offer any advice for the rest of us as to how we can avoid those rather sad, always disappointing tourist trap restaurants at a new destination. <laughs> I think there, there are plenty of uh, chefs and cooks who who um, might end up at a tourist trap. Like every, <laughs> we're human too, so don't worry about that. Don't believe don't, what you hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> honestly, I think actually in a lot of European places, it's like whether the older generation go to um, and. If you look from the outside and it doesn't look particularly nice, don't be put off. Sometimes that like the least fancy places I think of like when I go to Malaysia and Singapore with the like plastic chairs and tables and the bowls are like really simple cutlery and it's very kind of no frills have to be the the best places. Um, yeah, they're the real hidden gems, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean... My philosophy in general is like, go outside your comfort zone. In terms of that, um, getting outside of your comfort zone, what's the strangest thing that you've eaten overseas? So I once had to film a TV show for the BBC where I travelled around Malaysia and looked at my heritage, but also explored uh, the culture through food. And I was really fortunate to be able to go to the jungle and spend some time with the original tribe in Malaysia. And they hunted jungle squirrel and cooked a jungle curry for me with the jungle squirrel. Now, Jungle squirrel, wow. Yes. Now, you know, you look at a squirrel, it looks a bit fluffy, it's got fluffy tail. But oh, when no. you skin it <laughs> and you cook it whole and you take it out of the pot, it looks like a rat, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> 
So anyway, <laughs> is is that going to be in your next uh, recipe book? Oh yes, yeah. I mean, look, I must say, you know what? That they're using local the local produce, so that's great. Um, and it tastes a little bit like rabbit. It's a bit gamey, but it you know it's local. It's organic. It's a very sustainable source of protein, so mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of points in its favor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the food that you love. Like, is there a country that you just keep returning to again and again because you're passionate about the cuisine? So I've been really fortunate um, because my TV shows and my cookbooks are translated into Japanese to be able to go to Japan. But every time I go there, it's because I don't speak Japanese. Like I, you know, I have no clue, you know, where I'm going, what I'm doing. You know, I go into a shop and I pick up a packet or something. You know, when I'm in Tokyo or wherever I am in Japan, I'll go into their Seven Eleven and I'll. Oh my gosh, I love the Seven Eleven. Yeah, I'll just go through the packets. So like, do I eat it? Do I wash with it? What do I do with it? And I'll just buy it because it looks good, and then I take it back to the hotel. And then because I'm usually there for work, I'll have to ask somebody I'm working with, "What is this?" <laughs> I love that. They're amazing. I know Anthony Bourdain was a huge fan of the Lawson egg sandwich, that pillowy soft Mm. bread that they have with the egg inside. But before we start listing all our favorite things from Japanese convenience stores, I I wanted to delve into the latest chapter in your life. You now live in Stockholm, and I'm really keen to hear about your life in Sweden. Yeah. So um, Stockholm, unlike London and Paris, is quite a small city. Um, I can't remember how many people live in there, but um, you can easily walk around, super easy to cycle. You're never more than 100 meters away from some water or some like a forest. It's super green. I mean, they do call it the Venice of the North because it's uh, a lot of islands. So there are a lot of islands connected through bridges that you kind of have to island hop and you know, you can get a ferry, a bit like you can do that in Sydney. You can get a ferry to work. You're absolutely right. I used to get the classic green and gold Sydney ferry to get to school ah. every day. But um, yeah, so Stockholm is just, there's so many parklands, there's so much greenery. And then just in general, uh, the Swedish culture is so much around outdoorsiness and, mm. and getting out into the countryside. And there's something so romantic about that Swedish way of life, especially that cherished tradition of the public's right to freely roam the countryside and forest. Have you experienced that? Yeah, I mean, totally. It's a bit like the Japanese have the the term of forest bathing. So the Swedes have been doing that for, I don't know, since the beginning of time. You know, you're really immersed in that green, fresh smell. Um, also the stillness of it, it's like peaceful. Um, and then when you're walking around like that, feeling of the moss under your feet like that springiness it's just a fantastic way of switching off and then you've got to you know you've got the hard work of trying to find something because those mushrooms they blend in you know you don't want to pick up those poisonous red toadstools but also you Mm -hmm. can find a lot of berries so they're blueberries their lingerberries will be a little bit on in august um they're wild raspberries you can find the tiny um like forest strawberries there's cloudberries then you find elderflower um sweet meadow 
which is this amazing fragrant flower. I made that into cordial and ice cream the other day. Oh, beautiful. So, yeah, you're definitely outdoors. You have to love outdoors a lot. And where might you go? Is there a, a place in Sweden that's really oh, good? I can't tell you where I'm going. Nobody gives away <laughs> their spot. That's the secret of any forager. You keep it as a secret. Well, look, in Sweden, they have a, um, they call it Alma Mansret. I don't know if I'm saying it right. The right for people to walk anywhere. So you can forage anywhere. And the other Swedish tradition that I love, I got really obsessed with when I was in Stockholm, is fika. Mm. So is there a spot in Stockholm that you would recommend for the ultimate fika experience? Yeah, so the tradition of like having a coffee in a bun. Like Sweden or Stockholm has a lot of fantastic bakeries and the baking here in Sweden is a bit more hardy. You know, they love their rye, um, their spelt, their kind of harder, darker flowers. So you get some amazing sourdough. But then obviously you get these fantastic buns. And there's one bakery called Lilla Brosbaggeri, which translated means Little Brother Bakery. They do a fantastic cardamom um, or a cinnamon bun, which, you know, the cardamom and cinnamon buns you find everywhere, even at your like corner shop at the petrol station, you'll find a cardamom or a cinnamon bun. And those buns, oh my goodness, they are laden with butter. So obviously they make the dough, they spread the butter on, then they sprinkle it with like a sugar um, cardamom or a sugar and cinnamon mix, roll it up, coat it with some more butter, goes in the oven. And then when it comes out, sometimes when you go pick up the buns, you can see the baker, the buns have come out the oven and then he's like, dousing them liberally with more butter oh my gosh uh, so they are like dripping with butter but when they bake the butter and the spicy sugar mix uh, kind of sits to the bottom and caramelizes so then you get this kind of crispy caramel spicy mix at the bottom and yeah those buns are one of the best in town, I have to say. I have to go there. You've sold me. That sounds amazing. Yes. We've spent much of this conversation chatting about your travels in the literal sense, but now I'd like to hear a little bit more about your most recent journey of discovery. You've launched a new podcast, A Carnivore's Crisis. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so it was interesting for me. I'm always curious. I always want to learn more. And I I felt that the media was portraying veganism and certainly in a way that uh, it was very black and white. Become vegan and you will save the world. And I really just wanted to spend some time to explore that more in depth. So throughout the series, we interview you know, um, professors, activists, scientists, um, chefs, passionate cooks, farmers, and really like deep dive into this quite a complex subject. And has your eating or lifestyle changed as a result of undertaking the podcast? Well, I definitely question how I buy food, how I consume food, but I've always been very flexitarian and my approach to food is buy the best you can afford. You can make amazing food with plants, but I don't feel like you need a big piece of protein to be the hero of a dish anymore. I think you can come from a, like a more Asian approach where you have meat as a garnish or you don't even need it. So I definitely have reduced the amount of animal products, but 
that's not to say that I don't love butter. Um, my my mum's Austrian, my grandma's Austrian. I spent my summers in the mountains surrounded by cows. So I'm always going to love butter. But <laughs> I am more conscientious of how I consume animal products. Yeah, such an interesting subject to explore. And before we go, where are you dreaming of escaping to next? Um... I really want to go back to Japan. I love Japan so much. But I guess the place I haven't been to, which I'd be really curious, is Brazil or maybe Mexico. I haven't been to Latin America a lot. I've only ever been to uh, Argentina or to Buenos Aires. So I'd love to go there. Well, maybe we can all hope that one of your future cookbooks will be My Little South American Kitchen. But, Rachel, it's been such a pleasure having you on The Escape Artist. Thank you very much, Rachel Koo. Thank you. That was the TV chef and cookbook author, Rachel Koo. I hope you found her creative culinary journey as delightful as I did. And I think that we all learned today that you should never ask a Swedish person to reveal their secret foraging spots. If you're interested in exploring whether going vegan will save the planet, you can find Rachel's new eight-part podcast series, A Carnivore's Crisis, available on Audible. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. You can find me on Instagram at Escape Artist Podcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.